This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you. Thanks very much for your company on this Friday. We've got a full show today with the cricket a little bit wet at the moment. Now we'll keep you up to date with what's happening with that and whether we'll get to go back to the SCG a little bit later this afternoon. Coming up, we're going to hear about the new MLA Australian lamb ad. And it's all about a word that's being used a lot here in Australia. This year, we, we focused on this idea about calling things un-Australian. And, and what we found out was really it's got... It's really out of hand. You know, we've obviously seen it used in politics. We've seen it used in general parlance. But we've really seen how calling something an Australian sort of is is actually quite divisive. So I want to hear from you. What do you consider to be un-Australian? Or is that even a thing anymore? Do you say the word un-Australian? Send me a text on 0467 nine double two eight nine one and we'll hear more about that lamb ad very shortly but first today temporary access will be provided to class three vehicles to ensure delivery of essential goods to northwestern australia and the northern territory via south australia this is in response to key freight routes closures caused by recent flooding and making sure communities in northwest wa are not cut off from food and essential supplies The Department of Infrastructure and Transport, SA, has improved access for road trains up to 53.5 metres to use the air highway between Port Augusta and the SAWA border until the 28th of February of this year. Acting Chief Regulatory Policy and Standards Officer with the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator, Stephen Miller, explains the reasoning. What it essentially means is we've allowed uh, for a temporary period type 2 road trains uh, from the South Australian West Australian border through to Port Augusta in South Australia so that uh, they can join the Stewart Highway and operate up into the Northern Territory and Northern Western Australia um, while critical infrastructure is being cut by the flooding between Perth and Northern Western Australia. So these trucks are not usually able to go through these areas? Uh, on that particular road from the South Australian-Australian border to Port Augusta is normally restricted to a Type 1 road train, which is a double. Uh, we have actually done this several times in the past um, with the closure of the rail line and the, the flooding where we've allowed Type 2 road trains to operate on this route. But they're not normally uh, gazetted to operate on this route, but we can open it up to them in emergency situations. For those that don't know, what are Type 2 vehicles? So Type 2 road train, um, well, essentially what we're allowing is is a Type 1 uh, to increase to a Type 2 road train. So what that means is it's a double uh, road train uh, can increase to a triple road train. So it's allowed to have one extra trailer on. And so by having this this access, what does that mean by in terms of getting food and essential services to these other areas? What, what it means is we can carry more of those essential goods and services per road train. Uh, so it means less actually less trucks having to operate if we had to operate doubles. And uh, it's just a lot more efficient not only for industry, but allows us to get more goods into these impacted areas faster. And why aren't these used uh, at other times? Well, basically, uh, we we work with the road managers on that in in both uh, Western Australia and South Australia at the moment. Um, But every day, uh, normal operations, they've assessed that a double road train is is sort of as large as they want to go. But um, to increase to the triple road train, we do do pretty in-depth safety analysis of those roads, and it uh, means that we allow them on a temporary basis to operate over there. 
How many of these key freight routes are, are closed at the moment? The main key freight route that we're aware of that's closed is the Fritzway Crossing uh, up in northern WA, which is the normal road train route uh, from Perth up into northern WA. And that bridge has been uh, flooded and inundated and needs to be assessed for damage. We know that main route is closed at the moment. And so these uh, type 2 road trains will be taking different routes? Yeah, it is a different route. It's a, it's a detour route for them to get those essential goods and services into those communities. Uh, to ensure that, you know, they're not fully cut off by the closure of that Fitzroy crossing. And just finally, Stephen, obviously with these bigger road trains out and about on different um, roads, what should other road users be uh, be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, look, our message to other road users is just um, be safe, be aware that these uh, slightly longer vehicles are on that nullable route between the border and Port Augusta. Give yourselves a little bit more time uh, if you're planning to overtake because the road train may be a little bit longer than you used to. Um, and just play it safe, take your time and um, relax as you drive on that route. Acting Chief Regulatory Policy and Standards Officer with the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator, Stephen Miller. And for more information, including uh, guidance on mass limits permitted under this notice, you can go to the National Heavy Vehicle Regulatory website. Now, a regional New South Wales company is converting diesel prime movers to electric and trialling seven trucks involved in agriculture, mining and food distribution. Janus Electric on the Central Coast has orders for 130 conversions from companies all over Australia and says the economics stack up. CEO Lex Forsyth told David Clawton they can travel around 500 kilometres, take four minutes to recharge and the running cost is less than a quarter of a conventional diesel truck. We're taking up to 10-year-old prime movers and converting them from uh, diesel to electric. Um, so we're taking um, Kenworths, Max, Peter, uh, Western Stars, Freightliners, uh, Volvos and, and converting them from a diesel prime mover to uh, electric and then putting on our exchangeable battery technology. So that's starting to heat up a bit, yeah? Yeah, look, we've got a lot of interest. Um, I think a lot of fleet operators are wanting to embrace the technology and move forward because there's big operational savings in, in going to electric and, and get away getting away from high volatile diesel prices. We have got a couple of regional carriers around um, Mount Gambier and Port Augusta that are looking at it um, and some agricultural carriers that are starting to look at it from um, fixed um, operations that are typically running to feedlots or running uh, from grain board to, to court, depending on the distance that they're, they're looking at covering. We've converted seven trucks so far. We've got orders there for about another 130. Uh, one will be carting milk, the other is carting sand and gravel, and the other one is doing cement. And then we've got one going into a logging application and then one going into a mining application uh, hauling copper concentrate uh, for a project that we're doing with Oz Minerals and Cube called Vision Electric. Um, and then we've got some uh, some going to Melbourne, uh, going into fridge vans for one of our partners down there, Newcold, that will be um, uh, carrying uh, different frozen goods um, from de- uh, delivery um, from producers to uh, DC and then DC into a um, into uh, the supermarket DCs. That's uh, where we've 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 seen some of that, and also in the mining space in some of their long haul routes where they're not running a um, a dump truck, but they might be running a quad road train or a or a power, a power trailer uh, combination. I mean, one of the constraints that farmers often talk about is, um, you know, the lack of charging points around the countryside. Is that something that can be solved? Yeah, look, we, we build our own charge stations as well. Um, we, we understand the, the pressures of charging points. And, you know, this this application for electric vehicles, I, I don't believe electric vehicles are going to suit a, a livestock carrier or a um, a carrier in, in, in far western Queensland or in, in outback Australia because... The reality of it is, is there's a tyranny of distance, and when you when you look at the duty cycles of some of those vehicles, they're not utilised completely 
the way that um, vehicles in the capital cities are and in line hall, prominent line hall routes. Uh, I do think that, you know, th there is going to be a need uh, for some diesel prime movers in these rural applications because it, it doesn't make sense to go and put a heap of charging infrastructure in the middle of Australia or, you know, you're not going to get uh, pastoralist companies putting charging stations in there to recharge livestock trucks. That That's just not going to be practical. Uh, but in applications where you're, you know, for a farmer who has trucks operating on their farm, there's no reason why you couldn't put a solar system in one of our charge stations there on their farm and have any of the trucks that are working within the property running on electric. It would reduce maintenance costs and running costs significantly. Um, and they've got the beauty of being able to have a, a backup power system uh, for their for their properties as well at the same time. Yeah, the battery can can be a multi-purpose type thing. What about range? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of range for these vehicles? Look, we're, we're seeing between four to 600 kilometres, depending on what the vehicle's towing. Um, obviously, single trailer applications are a little bit higher, but anywhere between that four to 600 kilometres and the regenerative braking that's a standard feature, depending on the topography, you're harvesting that energy back into the battery. So that's that's what we're seeing as a, as, a, as range indications at the moment. And the cost of filling up your tank with diesel, that's got prohibitively expensive, as you mentioned earlier. What would it cost to recharge electrically? Oh, I think if you look at if you look at it as a cents per kilometre basis, uh, typically you, you're seeing around uh, diesels costing most operators. Um, typically, in most applications around that a dollar to a dollar fifteen a kilometre to operate. Going to electric, you're looking at around that um, forty to forty to sixty cents, depending on where you where you're buying your power. So, a farmer's right then that this is going to be, as you were saying, limited application in the bush, or do you think long term it it could could eventually be the way of the future? Electric vehicles on farms. I, th I definitely think electric vehicles are the way of the future. What what we need is advancements in the battery cell chemistry. We're we're working with one of our, our cell providers who's a partner in, uh, of our business, and we've got a new chemistry coming that we should see middle of next year, which is a, a lithium sulfur chemistry. That will double our double our range. So all of a sudden, our batteries will go from doing four to six hundred, going to eight to twelve hundred kilometres out of a battery charge. That's the game changer. The the big thing that we see is that you know as battery cell technology develops and we get better energy density out of solid state and these other chemistries that are being developed at the moment, the reason why we've gone with an exchangeable battery solution is so that the, the, the operator can get that technology as soon as it becomes economically viable and in manufacture, rather than buying a fixed battery asset. Um, that's fixed to the vehicle. We, we're looking at it and going, well, we've got to be able to move with the technology. And that's where the technology developments are coming is in battery cell technology. Just one last question, going back on the performance stuff. If I put a, an electric motor in one of my machines, what, how would it perform? Is it, is it better or, or worse when it comes to you know, heavy, heavy moving? Oh, look, I, I think it, we're, we're, the feedback that we get is the drivers find it unbelievable to drive because they are the, the torque and the availability of immediate torque is there. Like we're, we're going to have some of the highest powered electric trucks in the world at 720 horsepower. Um, they, we're about to about to deliver uh, two. One's going under a triple road train operating at 150 ton, and one's going under a, a B double operating at about 68 and a half ton. So, you know, this, this fallacy of electric vehicles not being able to shift and tow the loads 
comfortably. It, it's not it's not accurate. The the performance of electric motors is is far superior to that of a diesel, just through the through the um, flat torque curve that is in an electric motor. So the next time your, your diesel motor needs replacing, think electric. You reckon? Uh, definitely. Uh, look, I, I, I've been around the transport industry all my life. My family's had a long association with, with trucking right throughout Australia with FH and, and other transport businesses that we've been involved in over the last 40 odd years as, as, a, as a family. And, you know, I, I, I've focused solely on electrification now because I, I can see the I can see the return in it for the fleet operator. I can see the benefit for the environment. Um, I can see the benefit for the communities of what we can do with with the electrification of assets. And I also look at it from a part of our country. We, we've got the ability to be energy secure and energy so, have energy sovereignty um, just through our access to the renewable energy that we do have here in Australia. We have an abundance of renewable energy that we can utilise better. And by electrifying our transport fleets and, and our agriculture and our mining, we, we then start to alleviate our needs to import so much diesel and, and petroleum products from, over, uh, from offshore, you know, we import 95% of all our fuel is imported into this country. There's only ever around seven to 12 days of fuel in stock in the country. Anyone that says there's any more hasn't done the numbers. The reality of it is, is that, you know, we always are constantly having diesel shortages and diesel allocations because of shipping and there's a lack of terminal storage in the country to hold the amount of diesel that we require to keep operating. So. You know, that is a risk for our, our, our economy and it's also a massive burden on our economy on on what we are importing into the country in fuel stocks. Lex Forsyth from Janus Electric speaking to David Clawton. Let's stick in the New South Wales now and uh, wine grape growers in the Riverina region are counting their losses ahead of vintage. Some growers will not be able to harvest any crops due to rain and flooding while others are battling to keep any of the remaining grapes healthy. Harnwood grower Bruno Brombau is chairman of Riverina Wine Grape Growers and he's told Cara Jeffrey some areas have lost 30 to 50% of the crop. I'm glad to see nice weather appearing but the damage has been done uh where the water laid around for weeks and weeks, a lot of those crops have been destroyed. A lot of downy mills you got through it, and uh, they won't be harvesting those blocks. But there is some reasonable blocks around still, and we just hope the weather keeps going the way it is. Is there any percentage or any talk of what people think they would have lost from their crop? Look, there's farmers have lost the whole farm. Um, it's a bit hard to do percentage, but we probably reckon about 35 to 40, 50% in places. But some farms won't be harvesting at all. That's just, uh, especially where they had flood water sitting there, they couldn't get in. But even if they got in, there was a critical period in, in the grapes when they're flowering. They were protected till the flowering started. Once the flower opened up, that little berry coming out wasn't protected and we had three, four days of wet weather and a lot of them have been just wiped out. And is there a particular area in your region that the growers have been worse affected? No, no, it's no different. Look, it doesn't matter if we're from Hanwood, Ugala, Yenda, Leeton or uh, Nericon or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, it's worse with the water laid, but some of the properties where they just couldn't get the water off quick enough, they're just as bad. And has that water cleared now? Yeah, the water's cleared now. We've uh, got nice dry weather. Thank God for that. We don't want any showers on that. But uh, there's still damage in the grapes itself. Uh, the downy mildew is holding. But the next step now, there seems to be a bit of powdery mildew around on some of the Chardonnay. So we're getting rid of out of one disease and we're going into another. And is there much you can do about that at this stage of the season? Yeah, no, you can spray some powdery. Uh, you can control it. You get uh, nice warm weather and sulphur will control it too. So 
we've got cool weather for the next day, so we're back to 30, 35s, uh, which is uh, fantastic weather. And when do you think vintage will kick off for a lot of growers? I think we're about three weeks behind. Uh, usually by now we should we see a raisin in reds and we see uh, whites uh, even start eating a few berries. But I just found out yesterday, a guy rang up yesterday saying that he's found a couple of berries and chardonnay just ripening. It's about three weeks late. How's the situation for staffing and labour looking for this season? With the amount of loss we've got in the wine industry and crops not being harvested, I think we'd be totally OK this year. Uh, I think the citrus growers will probably be the worst off, but if we lose 20, 30, 40%, whatever it is, look, uh, there won't be much work for harvesters and there won't be that flat-out work we had like last year when we picked maybe 350,000 tonnes. How's the price looking for grapes? Uh, the price is pretty low uh, at this stage. There's only a couple of wines put out prices at this stage, but the rest probably won't come out for another couple of weeks. Uh, when they come out, we'll probably have more to see what uh, really is the price and uh, we won't have for the next couple of weeks, I suppose. Edward Grower and Riverina Wine Grape Growers Chairman Bruno Bromble speaking to Cara Jeffrey. Back to South Australia now and Wiener steers were back on sale at Narracourt sale yards yesterday with prices a little down from the sale in December. 3,250 steer calves were yarded with around 2,000 heifers yarded for today. Darren Maney, Director of TDC Livestock and Property, says results are still in a state of transition to a more sustainable price point. All in all, I think that as we can see, I think that the uh, the cattle market is going through a changing atmosphere at the moment where we're seeing a bit of a decrease in values. All in all, I think people can be quietly satisfied. Our bigger calves probably sold just as well as they did in the December sale with most of these generally changing hands from the $4.40 to $4.60 range, perhaps $4.70 if they're a year. And I'm probably talking calves there, 380 kilos and better. So they're all sort of around the... Uh, 1750 to 1850. In the main, I think the top men of calves, the James Gears calves from Panola, realised 2053, but they really were an exceptional pen of calves. Where it was dramatically different, I felt we had a lot of 320 to 360 kilo Angus calves in the December store sale here. These were sort of making $5.50 a kilo. Today, they were basically making 470 or 80. So you're dropping 80 cents on 300 kilos. So, you know, a lot of them calves were certainly in the range of $200 cheaper. Was that surprising for you? Uh, look, I, I think that if we people selling bullets at the other end, they're taking a dollar a kilo less than they were a month ago. I guess it starts to flow down to the other end. I think the one thing that's really dropped off the cattle market in the last six weeks has been the feedlot interest. We're basically getting very, very limited feedlot inquiry, whereas if you go back this time last year, what they weren't buying, they were buying all the heavy cars, and then all the lighter calves were going to New South Wales and Queensland. So I certainly think the uh, number of number of calves on, on offer is having some sort of an effect on it. But I really think that a lot of people that paid 22 or $300 for a 320 or 30 kilo steer calf last year, with the de- decrease in values, that animal's probably not worth a lot more 12 months later. So I certainly think that's where it's coming from. What do you think are some of the causes behind that? Well, I think the one thing that we've got to realise before anything else is how good last year was. And before we winch about how much things have come back four to $500, it was probably four to $500 dearer than we could have possibly imagined last year. But the bottom line is I just think it was very, very good. And when you get a market that gets a little bit overheated, somewhere up the track it's going to correct. And that's merely all that's happening. I think our markets are in good shape. The Australian dollar's in the right price. I think we're producing the right type of beef. I think all that's there. 
We're simply sell a commodity that's getting a market correction. What did today tell you about what's to come more generally? I think today is told us that uh, if you want to buy a good steer calf, you only have to spend fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars. And I think at what you can sell them for up the track on today's rate, that's a perfect sustainable level. The the breed is going to be five, four to six hundred dollars back on last year, but last year I keep stressing was one out of the box. Director of TDC Livestock, Darren Maney, speaking with Elsie Adamo. Let's find out what's happening with the weather around the state. We're joined by Senior Forecaster John Fisher. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. What's happening with the weather? Yeah, look, pretty good uh, day across the state uh, today. I think uh, temperatures are pretty close to uh, average. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing uh, the southeasterly winds keep some coastal areas in the, in the 20s, but, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the states in the, uh, the, the low 30s uh, up into the mid-30s through the, the north. Uh, so, yeah, winds have eased a little bit uh, since yesterday uh, as that high-pressure system has started to, to move away. But we are still seeing some freshness in those sea breezes this afternoon. So uh, we do still have one warning uh, left for the strong winds down across the, the lower southeast coast uh, as they'll pick up uh, later today. But, uh, yeah, elsewhere, uh, you know, more moderate uh, winds. So, yeah... Sunny day uh, today, except maybe just the, the odd little bit of cloud left for far southern coastal areas. And then up in the, the north, there is a bit of high cloud uh, as well. And that's actually associated with uh, extropical cyclone Ellie. So uh, as that low moves across NT uh, uh, over the weekend, we're going to see some rainfall move into the, the far north of our state uh, from that and potentially some thunderstorm activities well into early next week. Uh, so, yeah, some, some rainfall up there uh, over the, the coming days of probably 5 to 20 millimetres up right near that Northern Territory border, so north of Coober Pedy, uh, but, but maybe some higher falls with thunderstorms. But, uh, yeah, elsewhere we're looking at dry conditions uh, across the state and, and, and that's pretty much for, for the next week. Um, but over the weekend, uh, things are starting starting to, to warm up for, for much of the state. So uh, as a trough moves in from the, the west, we're going to see winds tend round to the north. So not too strong, though, uh, but uh, with that uh, northerly direction, uh, we are going to see uh, temperatures start to climb uh, and those coastal parts that have been seeing these milder conditions from the onshore winds will, uh, you know, have a, a forecast with a maximum, uh, you know, starting with a three, I think. It's going to be uh, pretty, you know, hot right down through coastal areas and then inland, uh, you know, we'll see mid to, to high high 30s on the forecast over the weekend and that's actually starting to trigger some uh, areas of low intensity uh, heat wave uh, starting uh, over the weekend uh, but yeah that that trough will move across uh, the, the state and and yeah hopefully um, we're not looking at anything currently in terms of extreme fire dangers it's just in that high range given the winds aren't too light uh, but as we see that trough move through the, the winds will come back around to the south uh, early next week and we're going to see uh, a freshening southerly airstream uh, from from Monday, and, and that will keep those coastal areas uh, uh, milder again uh, through the early part of uh, next week, and probably going to see some strong wind warnings again, and, and maybe some gully winds in parts. Uh, but it's not a strong change in terms of those temperatures pushing inland. So we're actually going to see uh, those temperatures, uh, you know, away from that uh, coastal influence, uh, remain in the the high. Uh, or uh, mid to high 30s and, and by the middle of next week even touching the, the 40s. So, uh, yeah, we're probably going to see those heat wave conditions, at least low intensity, uh, persist into to next week uh, and those dry conditions as well, Brooks. So, uh, yeah, look, it uh, looks like a fairly warm and, and dry period coming up unless you're right up in the far north of the state.
Yeah, that's definitely right. And uh, and if you're in in Sydney at the moment, it's definitely not dry either. So (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yes. (laughs) Well, uh, thanks very much for your time, John. I appreciate it. Uh, We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. That was John Fisher, Senior Weather Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. And uh, it is still very wet in Sydney at the moment uh, for the cricket. Uh, But let's take a look at the Western Inlands for tomorrow. Upper Western, sunny. Winds east to southeasterly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Overnight temperatures falling to between 17 and 21, with daytime temperatures reaching the low to high 30s for the lower western sunny, with winds easterly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Overnight temperatures falling to between 14 and 19, with daytime temperatures reaching the low to mid 30s. Now, still to come on the Country Hour, we are going to uh, hear about the new LAMAD, the uh, the Australian LAMAD with uh, Sam Kekovic. And uh, it's using a word, un-Australian. So what do you think is un-Australian? We'd love to hear from you. Send me a text. Or do you think the word un-Australian is even a thing? 0467 921. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. We're also going to hear... Pretty sad story from the flood situation about uh, a family who is uh, having to uh, to sell up because there's just so much water around and they need to uh, to make sure their cows are, are well looked after um, in that region. More on that very shortly, plus more to come. On the Country Hour, Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to 12.30. Listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au/rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks for your company. Great to have you today. Even though it has meant the cricket is a bit wet at the moment. We'll find out what's happening with that very soon. Coming up for a lot of communities living in flood-affected areas, their worst nightmares have become a reality. And for one family, things are about to change pretty significantly. I think the only scenario we have at the moment is selling all of the cows. Um, <coughs> we're going down the avenue of just selling the whole farm. So it has got to that sad point of having to sell up for that family. We'll hear from them very soon. Also... We're going to hear about the new Australian lamb ad and it talks about things that are un-Australian. So I want to hear from you. What do you consider to be un-Australian or is that even a thing anymore? Send me a text on 0467 We'll have more on that shortly. But first, let's get the latest from the newsroom. We're joined by Wendy Glamachat. Good afternoon, Wendy. Good afternoon. An Australian woman charged with entering Islamic State Territory has been granted bail after arguing she and her children have post-traumatic stress disorder. Police allege Mariam Rad willingly travelled to an IS-controlled area of Syria in 2014. The 31-year-old was arrested in the town of Yang yesterday after being returned to Australia in October. Dead octopuses, sea cucumbers and other marine life have washed up on South Australia's south coast, not far from the mouth of the River Murray. Experts are investigating whether the deaths are connected with the high flows from the Murray that have started to cause flooding in the lower lakes. Strong winds and tides are making it difficult to predict just how and when the River Murray floods will have the peak impact on the lower lakes. The flood waters are behaving differently in the various parts of the lakes and the water isn't leaving as quickly as predicted. At Malang, around 80 shacks remain under threat. 
and beekeepers on Kangaroo Island are still struggling three years on from the destructive bushfires. The destruction of vegetation left what was left of their Ligurian bees with little food for pollination. Many beekeepers say they've produced very little honey since the black summer bushfires. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Wendy. Wendy Glamourjack with the latest from the newsroom. Now to the floods again and for a lot of communities living in flood affected areas, their worst nightmares have become their reality. For one Murraylands family, this means selling their dairy cows in the farm after a levee breached and caused their entire property to flood. SES satellite data shows more than 3,400 properties have been inundated so far by the River Murray flood, with the peak set to reach Manham within days. Katrina Moore says her father, husband and three brothers spent almost 40 years building up the smart dairy farm in Maipalonga. Now they're looking for new jobs and a new way of life. We were just waiting for the water to come over the top of the bank and then we thought we had a few days. And then suddenly one night we just got a phone call saying the levee bank is breached and the water's coming in fast. So from then on it was pretty much all hands on deck to get the cows across the road to higher ground. And then, yeah, it was just a waiting game as to see how far it came up. We were checking the break in the levee bank every day and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we thought, oh, maybe we should start clearing out the dairy just in case things happen and sure enough our levy bank started to breach as well so it was full on trying to clear everything including the robots and the office and everything else out. And and, and what does the dairy look like now at the moment? The dairy where we were milking, the levy breached on that so that's all underwater. Yeah there's just nothing left of that at the moment. The whole lot, all the paddocks, the milking shed, everything's under. Um, and then the dairy we moved to is up on a cliff, like much higher ground. But we've gone from robotic milking back to three guys milking cows and two or three guys pushing the cows onto the rotary platform at the moment. And what does that change in milking mean for the cows from a welfare perspective? Um, when they were on the rotary um, on the robotic dairy, they would walk themselves to the dairy from the paddock to be milked whenever they needed to. And now going back to a rotary dairy, they at the moment are getting milked once a day and we're making about 3,000 litres a day from the cows. So the milk production has dropped dramatically. Whereas before with the robotic dairy, we were making about 15,000 litres of milk a day. We do have a lot of cows that have mastitis from like, walking from here to the other farm and then there's no feed except for hay as well that they're getting now because all the pastures are underwater. So, yeah, everything's a big change. So the plan is to now try and sell some of these cows? Is that the best-case scenario? Um, I think the only scenario we have at the moment is selling all of the cows. Um we're going down the avenue of just selling the whole farm. After having to make that really difficult decision to sell the farm, where, where's your where's your mind and, and your heart at? Yeah, well, no one really wanted to sell the farm. It's just kind of what we have to do to live because we can't keep going the way we are. Um, but, yeah, it is devastating knowing that that is the case now. So what's next for your family? 
Um, I'm sure at this stage, well, husband's going to have to find work somewhere else, as are all the, like, all my brothers as well. Um, no one's really sure what they want to do or where they want to go. Um, like, our son's just about to start school this year, and we don't want to take him away from where we are. But, yeah, we, we can't really do too much until the, like, until everything's sold. We can't start a new job while still working here. And we don't know how long it's going to take to sell everything here either. Well, we can't, we can't sell the paddocks, but we can sell everything else involved with the farm, like the cows, the robots, all the machinery and everything else. We just can't sell the paddocks because of all the water. We've really like, always been on the farm together. So, yeah, the family's really banded together. Um, yeah, now it's just, it's all gone, and we're all going to have to go our separate ways. Dad always said that he was building up the farm for the future of us kids, and then once these robots came, we thought we'd be set for our kids in the future and everything, and now for that to just all be gone, it's hard. I mean, most people out there probably think, oh, it's just some swamp, they'll get over it, but it's more than that to us. Do you feel on, on, on some level that things could have gone differently? Did you ever think that it was going to get to this point? Um, no, we didn't. No. We, all along we were told um, how high the water's going to come. If our levy did breach, then our levy around the dairy, we built that to the heights that they gave us. And then once that was all built and everything, they come back and said, no, we got it wrong, your levy's going to be a foot too low. So I think from then on that that is what started to break us, was the fact that they gave us misinformation. And then pretty much from then on, I think we, we knew we were going to be in trouble. The only thing that we can do on the farm now is feed the cows and milk the cows because we've got nothing else to do with all the water around. They're going from like a full day's work down to feeding cows and milking cows has been a big step backwards. Yeah, I think everyone's a bit lost as to what we're supposed to do. Katrina Moore from My Palonga's Smart Dairy Farm. Katrina's father, David Smart, is the owner of Smart Dairy Trust. He also recounts the flooding events and speaks about the difficult decision to sell his family farm. Yeah, we moved into a higher paddock just while we got the technology out of the dairy. And then two days later, we finally come up with a plan to walk them up the road about three and a half kilometres to another farm. Every time we made a plan, another road got closed because of water, so we had to keep changing it. And how does one move 500 cows up the road? Uh, get a lot of community support and help and just block the roads off. You put someone either end to block the road and you just walk them up in between them. And how are the cows now? Where are they? And how are you managing milking and, and feeding and, and things like that? Yeah, they're on a neighbouring farm, well, a little bit further up the road. Um, but milking's taking forever and really hard work um, that was one of the driving points in the decision that we made and we know that if, if cows are not milked for a period of time and not a, not a long period of time things like mastitis set in uh, is, is that a real concern at the moment yeah it is yep. um, the quality of the milk's not exactly premium at the moment and they don't seem to be improving in any sort of a hurry so what happens now are you, are you looking at just trying to 
manage the situation, look after them, try and get milking done where you can, try and get food where you can? Is it just about doing the best with what you've got at the moment? Yeah, I've got plenty of fodder on hand. That's not an issue. It's just getting a milk and try and keep them in a healthy state and maybe try and get them to improve so they're more saleable. So the plan is to try and still sell them? Yeah, yeah. I'd hate for them to go to meatworks. All of them go to the meatworks after 40 years of breeding, but it might be the only option. And hearing now that the government's announced an extra $124 million to flood relief support, primary producers uh, are said to have $75,000 of support headed their way. What do you realistically feel as though that money is going to help and who, in what situation do you think that money can help? I don't think it would help anyone, really. Being realistic, it's, it's a nothing figure, really. Yeah, the costs involved in just day-to-day running have more than quadrupled for us, and you know, $75,000 might last us a week. It's, it's not going to get my farm back. Obviously, you've made a really difficult decision now, so what's the next steps for you and your family? Yeah, just trying to make a plan and finalising everything. Um, one of the key factors in the decision was um, trying to keep the family together. If we kept going the way we were going, it probably would have broken the family. So in terms of your profession now and, and what the future looks like, have, have you managed to think about what you're going to do in, in terms of a livelihood and a source of income and, and things like that? Or is it just way too early to even comprehend and, and make those sort of plans forward? Yeah, it's probably too early to make those plans at this stage. Um, we'll all be looking for jobs in the near future once we've wound things up. We, we don't know what sort of jobs we'll be looking for. I've raised my children here I'm, I'm an import into the area. I've only been here 43 years. So, yeah, but the community's certainly coming out at the moment, offering all sorts of help. The day we wanted to move the cows, um, everyone just came out and helped. And I've got relief milkers coming in tomorrow morning. Give the other two a morning off. Uh, it's just small things, but they're huge. One of the hardest things is when we built our house, we built it with a view. And every time I walk out the front door, I see water. And it's just heartbreaking. Well, I can't just get up in the morning and say, I don't want to do it. I've still got to go and do it. Just, yeah, to look after them and, until I can find a solution. Yeah, very hard uh, times there at the moment. My Palonga's smart dairy farm owner, David Smart, Ending that story from Demetria Panagiotaris and uh, a text come through from Sonia at uh, at Cow. She says she's very, very sorry to hear this. She's heartbroken to hear about the hardship that everyone is going through with regard to the flood, especially the uh, the dairy farmers, and that's, uh, that's very true. Um, there is uh, some support available for flood-affected primary producers. They can get assistance by applying for recovery grants up to $75,000 by calling 1800 931 314 or visiting the Primary Industries website. And also, uh, just a reminder as well, Livestock SA has put the call out. If you do need help with uh, with fodder for your livestock, you can uh, jump on the website and fill out an online form there. And they're also looking for some donations of fodder as well if you can help out. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's 27 minutes to one. Get ready to be intrigued in 2023. ABC 23. 
David Wenham meets more iconic Australians in ABC of. Is that you, Art? That looks like my little plump face. There's a complicated ghost story in new comedy Limbo. I'm just trying to buy some unicorn undies. Plus, back in time for the corner shop. Welcome to our store. And so much more. Yeah. Strap yourselves in. Looking forward to 2023 on ABC TV and ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, when I said 27 minutes to one before, I was a little bit uh, off with my maths. It's, uh, it's now 16 minutes to one. Now, have you seen the new lamb ad yet? This year, the annual campaign funded by Meat and Livestock Australia's producer levy shows ordinary people being disappeared to a desert wasteland for any offences deemed un-Australian. Let's take a listen. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. <coughs> what is this? Where am I? Man, <coughs> how's that on a strap? All I said was, bon appetit. Beautiful day. Lamb. Doesn't get any better than this. I'm Graham Yardy and I'm the Domestic Market Manager for Meat and Livestock Australia. The idea behind the ad really is, you know, lamb, it's such a fantastic meat. It's the only meat that really brings people together. And we know that, you know, obviously the aroma and the taste and it's hard to resist the smell of lamb when it's cooking in a house. And we know that it's such a great sharing thing. And it really does bring people together. And every year we, we look for something topical, but we also think about, well, what are the things that are keeping people apart? And what can lamb do to, um, to help, I guess, uh, break down those barriers? And this year we, we focused on this idea about calling things un-Australian. And, and what we found out was really, it's, got, it, it's really out of hand. You know, we've obviously seen it used in politics. We've seen it used in general parlance, but we really, seen how calling something an Australian sort of is, is actually quite divisive and tries to separate us and for some way sort of say we're not worthy of the term Australian and so I think we decided to poke fun at the ridiculousness of, of calling it and really work out that we're actually all doing things that someone could call out an Australian and we also found out that actually a lot of people have been called un-Australian for things they're doing. There's been a number of challenges for livestock producers in Australia and lamb producers with flooding and, and weather conditions but you know at the same time lamb prices went up quite a lot last year too and have been hearing from consumers that are choosing uh, other types of meat just with the cost of living rising. How much do you think this ad campaign might help to get more people to choose lamb? Without a doubt, we're all feeling those pressures in all aspects of our lives these days. But, you know, I think where this ad comes to play is that we always set out to really remind people about why lamb is so great. And we have the best product in the world. It's, you know, amazingly produced in some of the, the best country in the in the world. And, and that quality really comes through and it's something that our lamb producers are, are really proud of and should be as well. Meat and Livestock Australia's domestic market manager, Graham Yardy. So what do people in the industry think about the lamb ad? Pastoralist David Farley from Narracourt in South Australia says the ads usually catch his attention. I'm probably not very social media savvy. I'm a bit unusual for a 44-year-old farmer. I'm probably not on any social media and things like that. So when I've got some spare time, I'll probably just go onto the MLA website. If I'm looking at some livestock prices, I'll just sort of see it there and go on it from there. He says prices for quality lamb have remained strong in the last six months. 
to demand for, I think that the lamb seems to be very good and good quality lamb is really about quality, seems to sell very much and that's sort of the, aim, the end that we're sort of aimed at and that we sort of sell to some sort of more specialised markets and those markets don't seem to be affected much at all, whereas more of our older sheep seem to be more affected, like any, any cull sheep and things like that, the markets really come right back. Narracourt pastoralist David Farley. Brett Gerbhardt is a butcher in South Australia's Riverland. He says he usually sees a spike in sales after the annual lamb ad airs. You know, the Sam Kakovich uh, ads that always seem to pop up just before Australia Day, everyone loves them and they are very controversial. It's great to see those ads come through and, and always get a bit of a smile in their face because it does, it stimulates everybody's thoughts when it comes to barbecuing and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. He says more shoppers are choosing secondary cuts of lamb amid cost of living pressures. Looking back a lot of years ago, it was just a lamb roast on a Sunday um, and, you know, even the byproducts like lamb shanks were thrown out to the animals outside, the dogs outside and the lamb flaps. Now everybody's, you know, we can't keep up. We wish lamb had probably ten legs and instead of four because there's just not enough lamb shanks to go around because the change and the trends of people's eating habits. And, uh, and, and I guess, yeah, again, it comes down to a lot of the familiarisation with what gets put on television and how people perceive certain cuts now, which were secondary cuts, have now become very, very popular. What are some of the secondary cuts that have risen in popularity? Well, speaking of the shanks and the breast, obviously the flaps, it's a bit similar to, I know we're talking lamb, but it's very similar to when you do a breakdown of a, of a, of a beef. You know, like brisket was not so much even sought after back in those days. Now everything, everybody's into low and slow. So even the, the cuts from a lamb's chest plate can be done so well that it's almost like it, it becomes a, a gourmet product. Riverland Butcher, Brett Gerpar, ending that story from Eliza Burlard with some additional reporting there from Elsie Adamo. And I put the call out for what do you think is un-Australian? 0467 922 Also would like to hear from you as well. Does the uh, the uh, Meat and Livestock Australia, Australia lamb ad that comes out around this time of year, does that make you eat more lamb? Send me a text. And uh, Wally from the West has... He said, a pub with no front bar. That's un-Australian. Thanks for your text, Wally. Brooke Nindorf with you. Let's uh, go to some birds now. And volunteers are eagerly awaiting the results of last year's national hooded plover count. The count, which happens biannually, covered 355 kilometres of the York Peninsula coastline and involved 41 counters. Fabian D, Northern End Landscape Board Officer, says there's hope that the vulnerable birds' numbers are increasing. So across a York Peninsula, we had 41 counters come along and do the biannual count over 80 surveys and they covered about 350 kilometres of the York Peninsula coastline. Great effort, especially seeing we had that really awful weather um, in November and that landed right in the middle of the count, but the volunteers were really enthusiastic and got out there and got it done, which was great. Were some of the hooded plovers seen in places that they hadn't before? There was one survey that was done south of Port Julia and there's not been hoodies recorded there before, so that was exciting as well. Now that the count's been done, when will the results come in? 
BirdLife Australia will be crunching the numbers and hopefully we'll get to hear what the results are in early 2023. The monitoring is done across the whole of Australia, so it's to monitor the numbers of hooded plovers. They're vulnerable in South Australia, so it's to see if they're increasing or decreasing because we had 285 hoodies counted at the last biennial count, which was in 2020. It'll be good to see if the numbers are going up with the strategies that are in place with the signage on the beaches, education and all the wonderful work that all the volunteers do, walking beaches, talking to people with dogs on the beach, you know, encouraging them to put their dogs on leads. We're hoping that all those messages are getting through and more of the hoodies that are living on York Peninsula are being given the opportunity to have a successful nesting season and pledge some of the young. What else is really important for beachgoers to know this summer when it comes to plovers on the beach? Hooded plovers lay their eggs actually in scrapes in the sand above the high tide mark. So they're quite well camouflaged and you wouldn't want to accidentally step on one. And also the chicks, once they hatch, they need to feed themselves. So they need to be able to get to the water's edge to feed. So if the parents of the chicks notice a dog off lead, they're very good at communicating with their chicks and hiding them away until that dog sort of moved off the beach, which means that for that period of time, the hoodies can't feed. So like the chicks can't feed. So if they see a dog on a lead, they tend to act a little bit differently because they monitor us. Generally, plovers can be known for their aggressive nature. What's the message there for the public if they do come face to face with a plover? There's different kinds of plovers. There's the spur-wing plover, which is the one that I think you might be referring to. Um, They can be quite aggressive. They're known to lay their eggs on ovals and in car parks and do things like that, and they swoop people. The hooded plovers are a lot smaller bird, and they nest on the beaches. They're actually quite a timid little bird. So the tactics that they use to to protect themselves and protect their young is that they'll lead you away from their, their nest. They don't generally swoop. So the message from us is just if we are sharing the beach with these lovely little birds, just to be aware that they're there. So people can, you know, look them up on the BirdLife Australia website and have a little look and see what these little birds look like. They're they're quite a little, little cute little thing. Their chicks are even cuter. They look like little cotton wool balls on stilts Um, but they're tiny little birds and uh, they're not aggressive at all so that's probably why they're quite vulnerable Um, so if um, we can help them by walking our dogs on a lead and um, also if we're driving on the beach um, if it's a beach where there is if if you're allowed to do that to stay um, you know closer to the water if it's safe to do so on the wet sand then we can sort of help them have a successful nesting season. If people would like to get involved in helping to look after the the hooded plovers because they are vulnerable, it's a great opportunity for people to be involved. They can get in contact with us and we will get them in contact with the Friends of Hooded Plover and um, they can be involved in the next biannual count, which will be in 2024. And then there's also um, monitoring of nests through the, the nesting season where people monitor a nest nearby them and then they can keep an eye on it and if it's in a high traffic area where there's a lot of people they may put some fencing up to protect a nest and or put 
Chicks on the Beach signs up to let people know that there's chicks on the beach. So that's one way that people can be involved. There's training and so on involved in that, but it's a very rewarding thing to do if people want to be involved in that. Fabian D, Northern and York Landscape Board Officer, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, the 30th Parks Elvis Festival is back on in the New South Wales Central West and it's generating money for a flood-affected town and inspiring one farmer to pull on his Elvis wig and play in the street. Colin McGilvray is a cattle farmer and Elvis tribute artist and he told Hamish Cole he turned to the king of rock and roll's music to get him through a difficult period after a, ba- a bad farm accident. Just later in life, in 2013, I had an angle grinder accident and nearly took my arm off. And uh, prior to that, I used to play guitar, but never did Elvis as such, just dance music mainly. I was snooked because I couldn't play the guitar anymore, and I, I was actually, um, I suppose, went into depression. I had my arm up or locked up in my shoulder for so long. So my stepson actually, JC, um, helped me with the computer get it going. And then uh, between um, that and trying to learn the lyrics, I got into Elvis. It's the easiest one I could to actually try to learn. But he's a heck of a voice and I had respiratory trouble and it's helped me really with that as well. So, and I just keep doing it. And now I'm here, so I uh, found a place where I can let it out if you like. Yeah, so that's where I'm in today. And as a result, what does Elvis mean to you? Wherever there is an Elvis, there's people. It's colourful. It's, it's a beauty. So it means a lot, actually. It means everything to us. I mean, it's uh, spiritually, I suppose, you could say. It gets us out and about. And people are happy. People are smiling. Um, I think that's uh, a healing. It's good. It means everything. And coming from Forbes, after all the flooding that you guys have had, and it's just been shocking, really, what the community's gone through. To see so many smiling faces here today, that must be really nice. Absolutely, actually, yes. Um, and we've got some personal friends that we saw last night, um, and we went and sat around the table with them, and um, it was, they were went into some sort of relief just to be able to hear. If you didn't know there was a flood, you probably couldn't tell by the garden area that where you were, it looked normal. And I think they were relieved to think, you know, they've come so far, probably in a month. I'd say it'd be about a month now, and they've been fighting with everything. They have got issues, they've got lots of issues. But the whole surrounds now, and the people, are coming back smiley faces. So it's tremendous, it's wonderful spirit. And hopefully um, here, uh, for the amount of people that's here, I've been here in other years, too. this year's a bigger buzz. Yeah, so um, it's getting better and better, and um, that's what we need, we all need. And you'll get any music, and Elvis will do it. Yeah, so um, if anybody can, he will. Cattle farmer and Elvis tribute artist Colin McGilvray speaking with Hamish Cole. And there, the Elvis Festival brings in $15 million for the park's economy annually with a record attendance of 30,000 people expected this year. Well, that's all we've got time for today. But uh, I was putting the call out for uh, what you think might be 
un-Australian and uh, that's because of the uh, the new lamb ad that's come out and it's, uh, you know, sending off people to the desert uh, if they come up with something that's un-Australian. And I've had a text come through that says it's un-Australian to suggest that something can't be called un-Australian. So make sure you check out that ad. You can uh, you can find it on the Australian lamb uh, social pages and it's, uh, it's very clever what they've come up with. Now, after the news at one o'clock, if you're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide, you'll be heading to Afternoons with Jacinta Parsons. And the regional listeners, you're off to the world today. Thanks very much for your company. Have a good rest of your Friday. I'll be back with you at the same time next week, one o'clock, news time. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.